0: You can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else. And that doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to any limited resource you need to manage, like your time, your focus, your energy, your attention. Saying yes to something implicitly means turning away other opportunities. And that opens up two questions. First, what matters most? Second, how do you make decisions that align with that which matters most? How do you... Prioritize your priorities. Living the answers to those two questions is a lifetime practice. And this podcast exists to explore the ways in which you can do that. My name is Paula Pant. I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast. And once upon a time, in Southern California in 1994, there lived a man named William Bengen. His friends called him Bill. Bill was born in Brooklyn. He studied aeronautics at MIT. He wrote a big paper on advanced model rocketry, gained a lot of acclaim. He then made a career pivot. He became an executive at a soft drink company. And finally, 17 years later, having made a name for himself as an MIT-educated rocket scientist and having made a name for himself as a high-level executive, he thought he was ready to retire. So he attempted to retire. He went to sunny Southern California and he got bored. He decided to become a financial advisor. He got a master's in financial planning, and he opened his own firm. And at that point, he started noticing what he thought was perhaps an error in judgment, one that dominated the field at the time. You see, back in 1994, many financial planners were claiming that since the stock market historically returns between 7 to 9% Compounding rates on average, on a long term aggregate average, there were many financial planners who were claiming that retirees could withdraw and spend as much as 7% of their portfolio in retirement. And Bill had a hunch that this may be misguided, but he wanted to prove it. So he began looking at 30 year time spans in US history starting from 1926. For example, the first time span ranged from 1926. To 1955. The second time span ranged from 1927 to 1956, and so forth. He assumed that a retiree held 50% stocks, in the form of an S&P 500 index, and 50% bonds, in the form of intermediate-term government bonds, and he assumed that this money was held in a tax-deferred account. Based on these assumptions, he then asked two questions. First, what was the worst-case scenario? In this case, the answer would be retiring in 1966. The 16-year time span from 1966 to 1982 was particularly rough. Historically, that would have been the worst year to retire. Then the second question became, how much could an investor withdraw from their portfolio if they had endured that worst-case scenario? How much could they withdraw and still have a high degree of confidence that they would not outlive their money. That answer was 4.2% in the first year, and 4.2% adjusted for inflation every subsequent year. And it was from that that the 4% safe withdrawal rule was born. The 4% rule became a groundbreaking insight in the world of retirement planning. It upended the dominant paradigm And fundamentally changed the way that people think about how much they need to save for retirement and how much they can spend once they've retired. Under the 4% rule, to use some simple examples, if you have a $1 million retirement portfolio, you could withdraw about 4% of that or $40,000 in year one of retirement and that same $40,000 adjusted for inflation every subsequent year. If you have a $1.5 million portfolio, you can withdraw $60,000 in year one. If you have a $2 million portfolio, you can withdraw $80,000 in year one and so forth. So 4% became a very simple shorthand for estimating how much you need to retire and how much you can withdraw from that portfolio during your retirement. And of course, since then... Bill Bengen, as well as other researchers, have done a lot of follow-up research where they've altered some of the variables to see what would happen. So, for example, if instead of assuming a 30-year retirement, you assume a 40 or 50 or 60 all the way out to infinity-year retirement, how does that change the equation? Or if the money is in a taxable account rather than a tax-deferred account, how does that change the result? And we're going to talk about all of that in this upcoming interview. And so it is a huge honor to feature Bill Bengen as the esteemed guest on the Afford Anything podcast today. Before we get into this interview with him, I have two announcements. Number one, we have a course on rental property investing called Your First Rental Property. We have decided to only open our doors for this course once this year. So in the year 2022, we're only admitting one cohort of students. This is a big departure from what we've done for the last three years. The last three years, we've had a spring semester and a fall semester. This year, we're having one and only one cohort of students. So if you want to learn about rental property investing, this is your only chance this year. We will be opening our doors in June of 2022. And if you want To learn more about it, if you want all of the information, go to affordanything.com/slash VIP list. That's affordanything.com/slash VIP list. So that's announcement number one. Announcement number two: we've put together a free guide on inflation and recession. I know that's a topic that concerns many of you. And so we've specifically put together a five-day email series all about inflation and recession and about how those tie to the world of real estate. If you want to get this five-day series for free, please go to affordanything.com slash inflation. All right, with those two announcements out of the way, here is our interview with esteemed retirement researcher, Bill Bengen. Hi, Bill. Hi, Paula. How are you? Doing well, thank you. I am so excited to talk to you. You are... Renowned for being the creator of the 4% rule. You came up with this idea even before the Trinity study. Walk us through that. How did you come up with the 4% rule?
1: Well, it was kind of a forced necessity. I was a relatively new planner uh, in the early 90s. My clients were coming to me and beginning to ask me about retirement. They were baby boomers, you know, in their mid to late 40s, as I was. Mm -hmm. And they started asking me questions uh, like, how much do I need to save for retirement? When I get to retirement, what kind of a budget can I have? How much can I take out? And I just passed the CFP exams, and I didn't remember anything about those uh, things on the CFP exams. So I went back, checked my CFP textbooks, nothing. And there was really not much internet at that time in the early 90s. So researching things like this is a lot tougher. So I just assumed then that there was nothing available. I couldn't find anything in print. So I got out my trusty uh, computer and my uh, book of rate of return data historically and set to work trying to answer the questions myself.
0: How is it that through all of the CFP training, a question that's as basic as how much do I need to retire didn't get asked or answered?
1: Well, I think, you know, and this is talking 30 years ago, really, we were on the cusp of people living much longer. Prior to that, people might have lived 10 years in retirement, didn't really care very much what they took out because uh, they're going to go through it in 10 years. But as we got into the 80s, 90s, people's living longer and longer, it became necessary to ask, if I need 30 uh, years to live off my money, uh, how can I take out safely?
0: So it was really just starting to become an issue. And so when you began that research, how did you first approach it? I mean, was your... initial approach to look at historic returns, or was that an iteration of some first attempt at a different approach?
1: Yeah, basically, I I wanted to see what had been possible historically before I tried anything fancier, like forecast. So I used actual data for returns for stocks and bonds and uh, for inflation for a couple of different asset classes, starting with just a few to begin to see what kind of results I get. And over the years, I've added more asset classes and made analysis more sophisticated.
0: And so when you first looked at the historic data, were the patterns initially obvious or did it take some time to sort through the noise?
1: Well, I remember the first time I drew a chart, which essentially graphed the withdrawal rate, the safe withdrawal rate, which means if I was looking at the worst case in history, which was the late 60s for a person to retire, and it was measured against the allocation of stocks And it was the weirdest thing because it was like a a humpback whale where if you had a a low allocation of stocks, you have a very low withdrawal rate. If you had a high allocation of stocks, you also had a very low withdrawal rate. And in between was kind of a a golden plateau which spanned, you know, 20 or 30 points of stock allocation, which gave you just about the same withdrawal rate anywhere in that range, somewhere, you know, between 40 and 70 percent stocks. Yeah, that blew me away because I didn't know what to expect, and uh, this did not look like any chart I would have imagined.
0: Hmm. And why was that? Why was it that if you were overexposed to stocks, it would have a similar effect to being underexposed?
1: Well, when you have a very high percentage of stocks and a bear market occurs early in retirement, your your portfolio is really devastated. At the other end, on a low percentage of stocks, of course, your investments don't have enough oomph, you know, to give you that higher withdrawal rate. That somewhere in between is a, a magic blend. That gets you just where you want to be.
0: So you're referring it to sequence of returns risk when it comes to early withdrawal?
1: That's right. And that's what I focused on early in retirement. It was only later when I took a closer look at the worst case scenario. Why was it a worst case? Why was the late 60s so bad to retire? We know we had two big bear markets back to back, and that was part of it early in retirement. But also inflation in the 70s forced retirees to increase their withdrawals. And that was locked in for the rest of retirement. They couldn't do anything about it. So they were hit on both sides. They were hit on the returns, which were low, and then they were hit on expenses, which were fixed and high and still growing.
0: When you started the research that led to the development of the 4% withdrawal rate, did you begin with the initial assumption that a person's withdrawal would be pegged to an inflationary increase but steady? throughout their retirement? And if so, why? Well, in
1: my initial research, I wanted to keep the assumptions as few and simple as possible because uh, I wanted to do a situation that I could understand and get some you know, revealing graphs quickly and easily. So yeah, I assumed that the first year, let's say, we take out 4%, if you have a million dollar portfolio, that's $40,000. And then every year after that, you throw away the 4% figure and just give yourself a dollar increase equal to inflation of the prior year. So essentially, the person is maintaining their lifestyle over time because they're keeping pace with inflation.
0: Mm. And other than simplicity of research, was there any other reason why that was the initial assumption when you began the research that led to the development of the 4% withdrawal rate?
1: Yeah. No, I think it was basically simplicity. You can make so many different assumptions here. I mean, even the term 4% rule, when we use that as really a, a mental shorthand, for a scenario that involves a lot of different assumptions, which usually aren't mentioned. Uh, but I wanted to uh, keep the number of assumptions. I wanted to keep, you know, a fixed 30 years of retirement. I was working with uh, strictly a, a retirement account, a tax-deferred account. I was uh, allowing the balance to go to zero at the end of retirement. And just those very simple, straightforward things. Because uh, getting the data work together and, and assembled was complex enough without looking all the uh, permutations.
0: Right. Right. And was this with a 50/50 stock bond allocation assumption?
1: My very early research when it was just about 4%, 4.1% was I varied the allocation, you know, between 10% bonds and uh 90% stocks and the sweet spot was anywhere between 40 and 70% stocks. As I started adding asset classes later, that plateau narrowed down, so it's probably somewhere around fifty fifty five percent is what I would recommend today to folks who have a diversified portfolio.
0: Hmm. How long did you look at the data before you came up with the four percent rule? Like, how much time did it take between when you were absorbing the research that was in front of you to when you were able to synthesize it?
1: Well, it took me some weeks to you know assemble all the data, get it entered in the spreadsheet set up all the formulas. But when I did that first chart, that's when it really, when I, it, it just blew me away because now I have a picture in front of me showing what all these numbers mean. I still remember that moment vividly to this day. It stunned me. I think I sat looking at that chart for an hour without moving wow. because I said, my goodness, this is what all this means.
0: Wow. Tell me more about that moment. Sure. When you saw that chart, How did you know? Did it feel right? You know, I looked at it and I said, I wonder if that's
1: right. So I went back and I checked all the numbers, I checked all the formulas, I checked all the relationships I created, and everything checked out. And I came to the realization that I was looking at was real. This is really what had happened historically. And I'd never seen anything like it before. So after a while I had to accept it because, you know, if the facts are what they are, even if we're not prepared for what they are.
0: (laughs) And what did that chart look like visually? Yeah,
1: it kind of looked like a flattened pyramid, you know, Mm. with a plateau on top, a kind of a safe zone. That was really surprised me that it was such a wide range that between forty and seventy percent stocks, it didn't make a difference. You got four point one percent out of the portfolio which I thought was really odd because, mm. you know, that's a pretty wide range of stock allocation, but uh, that's what it came out to be.
0: Hmm. After you synthesized this data, you created the chart. What did you do next? Who was the first person you told or the first people that you told?
1: I had a friend, a fellow financial advisor who i met some years before at a NAPFA meeting. My name is Jim Bray. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. I lost him a few years ago we had discussed a lot of things. And I called him up in excitement. And I said, look what I found, Jim. Jim was fascinated. And for many years after that, he was the first person I would call to tell my results. Because he was a very thoughtful, intelligent person. And he often helped me <laughs> sometimes, you know, correct the errors of approaches I had. But he was excited as I was about the result. You know, it was mm-hmm. unexpected from his perspective as well.
0: And then what happened next? Did you publish it? Did you present it? How did you get this idea out into the world?
1: Yeah, I started writing an article for the Journal of Financial Planning based Mm -hmm. on that. And, you know, I did a little additional research looking at some other charts and put that together and it came out in 94, which is, gosh, that seems so long ago. I can't believe I've been doing this for 28 years. And it got a very interesting reaction. Uh, A lot of people called me and congratulated me and, and some people were not so nice. <laughs> <laughs> they said nasty things to me, and uh, they didn't believe that 4% was the right number.
0: Hmm. Did they think it should be higher or lower? Was there any kind of trend? There were two camps. There were, there were folks who have been telling their clients
1: for years they could take out 7 or 8%, don't worry, just keep a lot of stocks in your portfolio. And there are other folks who said, well, you know, you're retired now. You really should be much more conservative and and have a lot of bonds. Don't have so much stocks. They're very volatile. Of course, my research indicated uh, neither camp was correct. You had to be somewhere in the middle.
0: I imagine, given the cacophony of opinions out there, that there was also competing research. Were there any particular papers that were published around the same time that had results that opposed yours?
1: No. I only was aware of one person who published a paper in 1993 in the Journal of Financial Planning. He was starting to look at the issue, not the same way I was looking at it. You know, he was looking kind of in intervals. I could see people were starting to look at this issue, you know, and getting close. About three, four years later, the Trinity study was released, and that pretty much confirmed what I had discovered, which was good to me because my greatest fear, you know, that I'd punched in a wrong number somewhere and all this was garbage and all the attention I'd gotten from people would suddenly dissolve and I'd be a pariah and not invented to cocktail parties anymore. But fortunately, <laughs> I, I had done my research correctly and uh, it had stood the test
0: of time. Were you involved with the Trinity study? No, I
1: had no involvement at all. I wasn't aware mm-hmm. that it was going to be released. I was glad to see it come out. You know, I, my philosophy is the more people you have in a profession doing research in a field, the better off you're going to be because they can verify each other's results or point out errors. You know, so the important thing is that the profession get it right and that we're all kind of participants in that.
0: Mm. So did you know that it was going to be published before it no. was published? or Wow. So you, f- you first encountered it just as everyone else did? Just like everyone else. That's right. Were there any nuances about the 4% rule that came out through the Trinity study that did not come out through your original research? In other words, are there any layers to the 4% rule that you yourself understood in greater depth or detail once the Trinity study came out?
1: You know, honestly, I can't remember yeah, I was a little bit surprised that they issued the study and they didn't reference earlier research such as mine. I remember reading it. I remember having a sense of satisfaction that the numbers were about the same, but I can't recall anything that was glaringly different from what I had discovered. Of course, by that time, you know, I was further down the line with my research. I was looking at a lot more variables and, and aspects of the problem, which I would then later publish.
0: Tell me about some of those, some of those other variables, some of the other aspects.
1: Well, I had only looked at tax-deferred accounts in my initial research. So since that time, I've looked at taxable accounts. I've looked at time horizons much different than 30 years. I've looked, you know, from 10 years and on practically to infinity. And it turns out as you take longer and longer during time, if you get 60, 70, 80, 90 years, your withdrawal rate, reaches kind of like what's called an asymptote mathematically where it just kind of flattens out and you get to a certain level where no matter how long you live this will be a safe withdrawal rate Hmm. it's a bit lower it's about half percent lower you know than what's called a safe withdrawal rate but let's say you know you want to use four and a half percent for the historical safe withdrawal rate for a 30-year person if someone were to live 100 years it'd be about four percent which is pretty much what the fire people are using which you know Mm -hmm. To me, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Hmm. So you think it's appropriate for somebody who is an early, an aspiring early retiree, someone who might want to retire at the age of, say, 35 and live ideally to 100, uh, you think a 4% withdrawal rate would be reasonable for that person?
1: Yeah. Once again, another variable is whether it's a taxable or tax-deferred account. That would apply to a tax-deferred account. Taxable accounts, probably about 10% less than that. So that's another thing you have to look into we're talking what's happened historically. I don't predict the future. I basically report what's happened in the past. It's really important to understand that Mm -hmm. because the environment we're in today has components which have never occurred historically. This combination of very high stock market valuations, very high bond market valuations, and high inflation has never existed. So I can't really say with absolute assurance that 4%, 4.5%, whatever rule you want to use, is going to hold up in these circumstances. And unfortunately, we won't know for a long time. So I would urge people to be a little cautious and conservative you know, in their selection of withdrawal rates right now.
0: What do you mean by a little cautious and conservative? Do you think something around 3.5% would be reasonable?
1: I think that's too draconian. I, mm-hmm. I think 4% from a tax-deferred account would take into a lot of terrible things into account. I mean, That would be worse than the 1970s, which was pretty terrible for investors. But you never know. You you never know what's going to happen in the markets and with inflation.
0: Hmm.
1: So I can't say that with 100% assurance.
0: Your original research was based around, if my understanding is correct, domestic equities and domestic bonds. How would further asset allocation, such as into international equities and bonds or something that didn't exist back in the 90s, cryptocurrency allocation, um, some of these other alternative investment methods, would these impact safe withdrawal rates?
1: Yeah. In 2006, I did another round of research where I incorporated small cap stocks as a third mm-hmm. asset class in addition to my original intermediate term U.S. government bonds and large cap U.S. stocks. That raised the uh, withdrawal rate from 4.1% to 4.5%. And then in the last year and a half, I added uh, four more asset classes to that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: including treasury bills, uh, U.S. mid-cap stocks, U.S. Uh, microcap stocks, and international stocks. Mm-hmm. And it only increased the withdrawal rate from 45 to 4.7%. So I think we're starting to reach diminishing returns where perhaps, you know, I don't know, honestly, I, I don't have a database for cryptocurrency. That's pretty new going back, so it's hard to figure it in. But there are a couple of other classes that could be used emerging markets, uh, gold, real estate. I think even if you throw them in the mix, it's going to be tough to get beyond 5%. And I don't even know if we'll quite get there. We may get close.
0: So what I'm hearing, and tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, is that with sophisticated asset allocation models, there's a likelihood that a person might be able to get up to a four point seven, four point eight, maybe five percent safe withdrawal rate at the top end. And that also at the bottom end, as a person's lifespan approaches infinity, yeah. the safe withdrawal rate asymptotically approaches around three point five percent. For a tax deferred account. Yeah. For a tax mm-hmm. deferred account. So well, what well, i well,
1: probably if you're gonna use four point seven percent as the new finding, then I would say probably four point two percent would be the Let's say the what I call a Methuselah client,
0: somebody mm-hmm. who lives
1: essentially forever, would be somewhere in that range, low fours. Low fours.
0: All right. So the the range of somewhere between three point five to four point seven, four point eight, with a best practice of maybe the low fours would be a generalized starting point.
1: Probably from a tax deferred account, it may not be a bad policy to follow in this environment because we we don't know how severe this environment will be. Hmm. And you don't want to run out of money. That's, uh, that's the number one rule. Don't run out of money. Number two rule is don't let your retirement nest egg get crushed. <laughs>
0: mm. On the topic of letting the retirement nest egg get crushed and on the topic of how we're in a very unique situation right now, what are some of the biggest risks that you see for today's retirees moving forward?
1: Well, we could have a very large bear market, with sticking high-level inflation, uh, something like we had in the 70s. I'm hoping we don't see that, but that would be very difficult for retirees, extremely difficult for them to navigate. So that's why I'm advocating caution right now until we get a better handle on what's going to happen. You know, We've had a lot of experimentation with uh, monetary policy from the central banks over the last 20 years. It really hasn't been reflected in the historical record yet it will be 20 years from now, and then we'll know exactly how devastating the effects of that was for retirees. But I don't know now where that'll go.
0: You mentioned also that we have, historically, very high stock valuations and very high bond prices. What should a person do, given the fact that all assets everywhere are expensive?
1: Well, you know, I can't advise people what to do because, you know, I'm not I'm a retired financial advisor now. I can tell you what I do, sure. which is about all uh, that I, th- I can accurately represent. I use a service which is, determines the level of risk in the market and adjusts the stock allocation accordingly. And I'm even more conservative than that. Right now, my allocation of stocks, which would normally be 55%, uh, is around 15% wow. and maybe 5% in commodities and gold and real estate. And my bond allocation is also correspondingly low. Uh, It's around 15 to 20 percent. So I've got a lot of cash. Hmm. And it sounds stupid to have that much cash, which is yielding zero. But so far this year, a return of zero would have been pretty good, I think, for most people, (laughs) all things considered. Everything's been going down and it may continue for a while. I don't know. I'm not a see or I can't forecast. something.
0: <laughs> but with your cash allocation, isn't the return negative seven given the inflation rate?
1: Yes, it's a real dilemma for investors. But I think what you have to try and do is earn the safely the highest total return you can. Inflation is what it is. I mean, if I earn zero and if i had been fully invested in stocks, I would have been minus six or minus seven now. I'm a lot better off no matter what the inflation rate is. I've preserved my portfolio. So it's a very uncomfortable time to invest.
0: And you are 75 years old right now, if I may ask?
1: Uh, Not quite. 74 and a half.
0: 74 and a half. (laughs) That's right. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. All right. So what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost, they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly, but you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own and. If you were starting today if you were 24 and a half okay what would your approach be what what would you be thinking through if the regardless of your timeline to retirement at 24 and a half you might not know if your retirement goal is going to be age 34 or 44 or 54 or 84 uh-huh. um so not knowing exactly when you want to retire but knowing that you at least want some degree of financial security and stability and and options, what would you do from that point forward?
1: Well, I would advise my younger self, if I have to run into myself on the street, uh, I would save as much as I possibly could out of my paycheck because returns are uncertain. And uh, the larger the nest egg you have in retirement, the easier it's going to be. And by the, you know, a 24-year-old, who knows? They may have a life expectancy of 110, 120, you know, medical science over the next 20 years might discover some incredible things. And they may need being retirement to 60, 70, 80 years. So we're looking at that, like you said, that lower, that Methuselah client kind of situation, very long-lived client. Mm -hmm. They can't use that 4.7% rule. I got to use like a low fours number out of a tax-deferred account. You know, that means you need a pretty big nest egg
0: hmm. uh,
1: if you want to have a decent lifestyle in retirement. So save, save, save.
0: You've mentioned tax-deferred accounts multiple times. Many people now, of course, have significant amounts of money in tax-exempt accounts, Roth accounts. How does that change the picture?
1: Uh, the analysis is pretty much the same. I group them all under umbrella term, tax advantage accounts. The analysis is the same. None of the capital gains are being taxed or the income during retirement growth. So doesn't change. It's only when you get to the taxable accounts, you know, that things change dramatically.
0: And can you talk about that? How do things change dramatically with taxable accounts? What assumptions do we need to make?
1: Yeah, well, I always assume that the portfolio will pay any taxes, investment taxes generated from capital gains and in income uh, while it's active. So for a tax-deferred portfolio, of course, you don't have any. For a taxable account, you are paying taxes out of account, and it diminishes the size of the account over time, uh, so that as you end up with a lower draw rate, of course, about 10 to 15%, depending upon the tax rate you know, for the portfolio, than it would have been if it had been a tax-advantaged account.
0: And so that's 10 to 15% less than the 4% number.
1: That's right. That's just a ballpark figure. It really depends upon the tax rate.
0: It'd be like 90% of 4% is what you would end up pocketing.
1: Uh huh. That's a fair approximation.
0: What we've been talking about right now is predicated on the assumption that you are an individual planning for your own life and your own retirement. How does the conversation change for couples who are planning for a retirement in which the Spending needs will diverge based on the fact that they may have highly divergent lifespans.
1: That's honestly a complex issue. I haven't looked at it's mm-hmm. an It's a very interesting question. I'm assuming some of my compatriots in, the, in research have probably looked at it. I, even I'm not sure how I go about that. You know, there's so much complexity in this analysis to begin with. For example, I'm, I assume always I'm a the investor is a buy and hold investor. Mm -hmm. because that's the only way I can see to analyze it in some kind of meaningful way. But obviously, people have all kinds of different. Some people, you know, try to time the market, some use market risk adjustments. What should their withdrawal rate be? I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really, I just haven't looked at it. But I'm going to add it to my list, though. It's an interesting question, Paul.
0: Are you still doing research on the note of you adding it to your list?
1: Yeah, I am. I plan to update my 2006 book because it's outdated now i've done so much research since that time discovered so many new things i'd like to get it in book form and that'll probably be my final contribution to the profession when i get that i layout. i've developed a complete program a systematic way to determine what your draw should be and how you should manage them in retirement and and perhaps how you should adjust them to retirement it's important to recognize that it's just when you come out with a withdrawal rate at the beginning of retirement it may not be end of the process. Just like with any other plan, if you live long enough, you find yourself making adjustments to adapt to changing circumstances, and that's the same thing with a withdrawal plan. You may have to make changes over time.
0: Can you tell us more, not just about what you're currently researching, but how it was that you were led to this? I mean, you've been researching retirement for longer than some of the people listening to this podcast have been alive. <laughs>
1: Sadly true.
0: Every researcher follows their curiosity. How has that path of curiosity morphed and iterated for you over such a long time span of successfully researching retirement?
1: I was frustrated for many years because people are focusing on the safe withdrawal rate, okay, which is actually based on the worst case that investors, retirees had to face in their late 60s. It's mm. where you got that 45 or 4.7% of rule from. But I knew that historically, some retirees have been able to withdraw much higher rates, up to 13%. And I could never determine a rational method by which one could determine what are the right set of circumstances under which you can take higher than that safe withdrawal rate. Because they have clearly have existed in the past. And then about a year and a half ago, I made a discovery. I realized that it was important not only to focus on you know returns early retirement but inflation. And if you look at market valuation at the time of retirement, stock market and couple that with the inflation regime you're in, those two factors together allow you to very reliably pick or draw a withdrawal rate from history that should work over, you know, your thirty year period and it could well be much higher than the 4.7. For example, you remember this terrific bear market we had in 2008 to 2009 mm-hmm. when the market dropped almost 60%. I determined that the retiree who uh, retired at the end of March in 2009, really near the market bottom, could safely take out 6.5% hmm. instead of the 4.7. Now, that's a big difference. That's like 30% more <laughs> spending for a whole lifetime. Right. So the person who had blindly followed the 4.7% or 4.5% rule, you know, would have shorted themselves. By now, they would have had so much in their bank account, they're saying, oh, my goodness, why didn't I spend this and have more fun in the last 15 years? Mm. So when I was finally able to determine that, that kind of like completed my research in terms of providing a complete systematic approach to managing and, and defining withdrawals. And it was very gratifying uh, after all those years to finally come up with because It was purely by matter of chance. I was just playing around with things, and I had this aha moment, and I drew another chart, I said, oh, my goodness, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) And once again, I sat there for an hour and a half and looked at this chart I created and said, yeah, this really works. (laughs) So that's the way discoveries are.
0: Wow. And so how did you discover that? What was the process by which you were able to come up with those numbers?
1: Well, I knew that inflation was definitely a factor known from the beginning, because that created the safe withdrawal rate. I just couldn't see how to integrate it into the analysis. And I knew also, you know, Michael Kitsis, another advisor, Mm -hmm. had discovered that market valuations had a very close correlation to withdrawal rates historically. And then I just said, gosh, let's just divide all these retirees, all the historical data into six categories, each one with a different inflation category. And let's see what it does. And I created the chart and it it was astounding you know how well correlated that chart was uh, because if you just use stock market valuations alone, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. You get a huge spread in potential withdrawal rates, like 50%, but adding in the inflation picture to the market valuations gives you like over 90% assurance that you have a good withdrawal rate that will last you all through retirement, at least based on history. And that, that was a major breakthrough, and that, that really – That'll be the theme of my book. To a certain extent, you know, I know you've heard about some folks who use guardrails. In an attempt to get higher withdrawal rates, people for a long time have been looking to make adjustments based on, them. gee, I'll take out less when the stock market drops, I'll take it more when it goes up. My latest discovery kind of obviates the necessity for all that because now we have a high degree of confidence that the withdrawal rate we pick at the beginning is carefully related to market factors that truly determine your withdrawal rate over long periods of time, and you won't need all those other. You still probably should, you know, be reviewing it every five years and making adjustments if they're required, but they shouldn't be big adjustments.
0: So for the average person who's listening to this, how would they put that research into action? Is there an online calculator or formula or a spreadsheet that they can use?
1: No, because it's complex. A mm. lot of it is based on charts and not formulas. Mm. For example, I've developed what I call templates, where if you know the market valuation today and you know the inflation rate today, it's probably occurred sometime in history. And we know there's a withdrawal rate associated with that. Mm -hmm. So I can produce a chart. Let's say somebody retiring today, maybe he matches circumstances that occurred in July of 1966, create the chart for the July 1966 retiree. And he'll use that as a template in each year, compare the progress of his portfolio against this investor from, you know, over 50 years ago. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it is complex. I wish I'm going to put all that in my book as much as I can to help people, you know, understand and possibly utilize it. But this kind of research ultimately involves a fair amount of complexity. So. It's getting harder and harder to explain, simple like the 4% rule. (laughs) You say that, everybody says, that's great. But I'll say, wait a minute, (laughs) there's this.
0: Are you surprised by the amount of attention that the 4% rule has gathered? Do you think that it's appealing because it's such a simple heuristic?
1: Yeah. I really had done the research for my own clients. Mm -hmm. Uh, Initially, I hadn't thought about you know, using it and giving a broader exposure. And then it just became obvious that I should. People asked me to. And of course, when you say 4% rule, that's really a mental shorthand for a lot of a lot of stuff behind it. Hmm. But yeah, I'm surprised that 28 years later that people are still interested in the topic and I'm still discovering new stuff, which is pretty exciting for me.
0: Do you think that it gets misinterpreted frequently?
1: yeah and in a number of different ways some people assume it's four percent of your portfolio starting value every year instead mm. of, you know giving an inflation just every year some folks have recently come out with very, much lower safe withdrawal rates you know in the twos and threes and i had the opportunity to look at one of those research reports recently and the reason they came out with something the low threes is that they're assuming very low rates of return for stocks and bonds for a 50-year period. Mm. And that's never happened in history. Not to say it couldn't happen. I'm not a forecaster once again. But, you know, when you use some very, very low withdrawal rate of, a, I'm sorry, rates of return for a very long period of time, sure, you're going to end up with a low withdrawal rate. Is it realistic? I can't say. I'll leave it up to the individual to decide that. Mm.
0: The 4% rule is sometimes referred to as the Bengen rule. Do you like that? How does that make you feel?
1: No. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed. <laughs> you know, once again, when I do this research, I'm not doing it for reasons of ego. I'm doing it because I feel I have something of value to give to the profession, a profession which over many years gave me an awful lot. Uh, I don't need uh, gratification, ego gratification. Uh, don't seek it. Never asked anyone to call it the bank and rule. If they want to do it, that's fine. But not necessary. I just feel like I'm one of a, a long line of person that's been doing research, and there will be many after me, and we're all part of a parade uh, that's designed to to help the profession get it right. That's what counts.
0: You mentioned that the profession has given a lot to you. What, have, what has the profession given you? What have you learned through this field?
1: Oh, financial planning uh, was immensely gratifying me because I felt every day when I went to work... I could make a difference in people's lives directly, um, very significant, because I, essentially I was learning a lot about a lot of complex areas that the average individual just doesn't have time to to explore and, and understand. And this was important to them, it was their life, you know, what they hoped to accomplish in their life. It was a thrill, it was a great privilege to be able to be part of that profession and offer people advice and, and hopefully uh, help enrich their lives. And I've had people... You know, clients, after I retired, call me and tell me, thank you so much for doing this for me because, you know, it helped me do something that I didn't think I'd be able to do. And that's so enormously gratifying, I can't even express it in words.
0: Tell me about your own retirement. What happens when the retirement researcher retires? How did you know it was time?
1: Well, I guess you can call retirement. I've been awfully busy. I'm not following (laughs) the traditional role where I'm paying bridge and tennis and golf every day. But I retired, and I used at the four and a half percent rule. And over time, because the stock market's done so well, of course, my withdrawal rate is probably down to three and a half percent now, if you look at it. And I'm sure that's happened with a lot of other people. But then again, we may have a big bear market coming, so (laughs) that may change (laughs) at any time. But I had a lot of confidence that my research, that I I had a good parameter to use, that I did, and uh, it's worked. Well, one more satisfied client, me.
0: How old were you when you retired? Uh, I was 66. And how did you know that it was time?
1: You know, I think a year before that, I was still maintained to people that I was going to do financial planning and die with my boots on, so to speak. (laughs) I was not. And uh, then something changed. I, I got a grandson and I was spending, you know, like a lot of solo planners, spending a lot of time, 50, 60 hours a week in my office. I began to get the feeling that I wanted to have time to do other things. I wanted to be a good grandfather. I wanted to try my hand at writing a novel. I wanted to do other things with my wife. And one day I woke up and I said, okay, this is it. You know, I put 25 years in. It's time to go. So I contacted a third-party firm and put my firm up for sale. And, you know, in six months I was out.
0: You mentioned that once you update your book – That will probably be your last research-related contribution to the field of financial planning. What else do you look forward to doing?
1: Well, I'm always involved in one project or another. Right now, in the community I live, which is an active adult community that's been around for about 30 years, there was a mistake made earlier to divide it into two communities, each with its own HOA, (homeowner Association, and that's turned out to have disastrous consequences. So I am leading the movement in the community to uh, merge those two into one. And it's a race against time. I have a low tolerance for <laughs> bad situations. Uh, when I see something, I want to change it if I can. So we've started and we're building an organization. And so far, we're, we're coming along. It's just it's going to be a long-term thing. It's going to be five, six, seven years before we get this done. But it's very important to people. Let it get done.
0: So you're focused on local community involvement.
1: For now, yes, that's right. There's a whole bunch of other things. I'm trying to learn my guitar better. I'm trying to become a better golfer. And I'm involved with bridge and astronomy and uh, tennis. I just started taking some pickleball lessons. So uh, there's always something new and exciting to do in life. It's a wonderful experience. I don't understand it all completely, but I do know it's meant to be seized and uh, gotten the most out of.
0: Mm. Excellent. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. Are there any questions that I haven't asked or any messages that you'd like to emphasize?
1: No, you've asked an awful lot of very (laughs) thoughtful questions. I appreciate that. It certainly made me think hard (laughs) about the answers. But once again, I just tell people, don't let your nest egg be crushed uh, retirement because we're not sure in the next bull market how quickly it will recover. Uh, and if inflation continues to be sticky, you know, you, you really got to be careful.
0: Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Where can people find you if they'd like to know more about you and your work?
1: They can buy my book, which, uh, you know, it's out of print now, Conserving Client Portfolios During Retirement. But there are used copies available. And that gives a summary of my research up to 16 years ago. And they can look for articles that have appeared into journal financial planning and financial advisor magazine over the last six or seven years to get an update but that's when i get the book updated because i need to get all that stuff in one place you know Mm. in some sort of a rational format instead of helter skelter all over the literary world
0: (laughs) excellent thank you so much
1: my pleasure thank you paul 10
0: seconds on the clock how many things can you name that are always growing like your hair your net worth i hope your income, your investment portfolio. Again, I hope, I hope. Hey, how about the revenue in the business that you run on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you just started or whether you've been in business for 10 years, whether you're selling accounting textbooks or windshield wiper repair kits, and whether you're selling in person or online. If you're online, know that Shopify And businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. So, sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paula now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash paula. Thank you, Bill. What are some of the key takeaways that we got from this conversation? Here are three. Number one. Sometimes when you see the right answer, you just know. You don't doubt that the answer is correct because you spent a long time looking for it. And when you finally find it, you have a very deep sense that, yes, this is right. That's how Bill Bengen described the moment when he sat back and saw the research for the first time.
1: Well, it took me some weeks to, you know, assemble all the data, get it entered in the spreadsheet, set up all the formulas. But when I did that first chart, that's when it really, when I, it, it just blew me away because now I have a picture in front of me showing what all these numbers mean. I still remember that moment vividly to this day. It stunned me. I think I sat looking at that chart for an hour without moving because I said, my goodness, this is what all this means.
0: Sometimes there are moments in life where you just know, you stumble upon an answer. And the moment you see that answer, the moment you come in contact with that answer for the first time, you immediately and deeply know it to be right. I felt that way 12 years ago when the term afford anything popped into my head for the first time. And I remember that moment clearly. I will never forget where I was at that moment. But the phrase afford anything entered my mind and instantly, instantly, I knew that that was the name that I had been searching for, the name that I was going to give to the message and the philosophy that I was going to spend the rest of my life sharing with the world. And you may have had that experience at different times in your life. Maybe when you first arrived in the city that you knew you wanted to live in. Maybe when you first picked up a textbook in the field that you wanted to study. Maybe when you first picked your puppy out of a shelter. There might have been times that you felt that. And if you haven't, that's okay too. The key takeaway here is simply that those moments, if we are lucky enough to experience them, those moments are anchor points in which we know that what we found is right. So whether or not you've ever experienced that, Be open to it. And if you do experience it, trust it. That's key takeaway number one. Key takeaway number two. And here we get directly to the overt topic of this show, personal finance. Key takeaway number two is that 4.2% is considered to be a safe withdrawal rate for the money that's in your tax deferred retirement accounts. In fact, Bill says, if you're planning only a 30-year retirement, you may be able to push that up as high as 4.7 or more, depending on your asset allocation, et cetera. But as your retirement approaches infinity, the safe withdrawal rate asymptotically approaches 4.2% for money that's in a tax-deferred account. And about 10% less than that, meaning 10% of 4% less than that for money that's in a taxable account. And that's based on historic performance.
1: I've looked at time horizons much different than 30 years. I've looked, you know, from 10 years and on, practically to infinity. It turns out, as you take longer and longer during time, if you get 60, 70, 80, 90 years, your withdrawal rate reaches kind of like what's called an asymptote mathematically, where it just kind of flattens out, and you get to a certain level where no matter how long you live, this will be a safe withdrawal rate. It's a bit lower. It's about half a percent lower you know, than what's called a safe withdrawal rate. But let's say, you know, you want to use 4.5% for the historical safe withdrawal rate. For a 30-year person, if someone were to live 100 years, it'd be about 4%, which is pretty much what the fire people are using, which, you mm-hmm. know, to me makes a lot of sense.
0: Bill also indicates that there is research that shows that you could go up to 4.7%, but again, This is based on historic performance and we don't necessarily know that the future will reflect the past. And so given the current market conditions, given that all assets, equities, bonds, real estate, every asset is high plus inflation is high, there is a level of uncertainty in the market. And that's something to factor in as well when you're determining your safe withdrawal rate.
1: If you're going to use 4.7%. As the new finding, then I would say probably 4.2% would be the, let's say the, what I call a Methuselah client, somebody who mm-hmm. lives essentially forever, would be somewhere in that range, low fours.
0: Low fours. All right. So the the range of somewhere between 3.5 to 4.7, 4.8 with a best practice of maybe the low fours would be a generalized starting point.
1: Probably from a tax-deferred account, it may not be a bad policy to follow in this environment because we we don't know how severe this environment will be.
0: As a reminder, if you want to learn more about inflation in the year 2022 and the risk of recession in 2022, we've created a free five-day email series that deep dives into this topic, inflation and recession, and how both of those relate to investing, specifically how they relate to real estate investing, free five-day series. To get it, go to affordanything.com inflation. That's affordanything.com slash inflation. So that is key takeaway number two. Finally, key takeaway number three. Remember that 4.2% is a safe withdrawal rate, not the optimal one, meaning that you may be able to spend more. There is a more complex calculation that considers both market valuations, and inflation. And that more complex calculation can create a different withdrawal rate that still gives you a high degree of confidence of not running out of your money during your lifetime based on historic performance. This all comes from very recent research that Bill Bengen has performed.
1: I was frustrated for many years because people are focusing on the safe withdrawal rate, okay, which is actually based on the worst case that investors, retirees had to face in their late sixties, which is where you got that four and a half or four point seven percent rule from. But I knew that historically some retirees have been able to withdraw much higher rates up to thirteen percent. And I could never determine a rational method by which one could determine what are the right set of circumstances under which you can take higher than that safe withdrawal rate, because they have clearly have existed in the past. And then about a year and a half ago, I made a discovery. I realized that it was important not only to focus on you know, returns early retirement, but inflation. And if you look at market valuation at the time of retirement, stock market, and couple that with the inflation regime you're in, those two factors together allow you to very reliably pick or draw a withdrawal rate from history that should work over you know, your 30year period, and it could well be much higher than the 4.7. For example, you remember the terrific bear market we had in 2008 through 2009, when the market dropped almost 60%. I determined that the retiree who uh, retired at the end of March in 2009, really near the market bottom, could safely take out 6.5% instead of the 47 Now, that's a big difference. That's like 30% more spending for a whole lifetime. So the person who had blindly followed the 4.7% or 4.5% rule, you know, would have shorted themselves. By now, they would have had so much in their bank account, they're saying, oh, my goodness, why didn't I spend this and have more fun in the last 15 years? So when I was finally able to determine that, that kind of like... Completed my research in terms of providing a complete systematic approach to managing and, and defining withdrawals, and it was very gratifying uh, after all those years to finally come up with because it was purely by matter of chance. I was just playing around with things, and I had this aha moment. And I drew another chart. And I said, "Oh my goodness, this is it!" <laughs> and once again, I sat there for an hour and a half and looked at this chart I created and said, "Yeah, this really works." <laughs> so. That's the way discoveries are.
0: Now, there isn't a formula for this, which means there aren't online calculators for this, but there are charts and tables that you can reference, which will soon be published when he updates his book. So at the moment, for the latest in research, you can look at academic journals. You can look at the Journal of Financial Planning. You can look at articles published by other financial advisors like Michael Kitsis or retirement researcher Wade Pfau both of whom have also been previous guests on this podcast. You can search our podcast archives for links to their episodes, their websites, their books, their research. But there are new discoveries being made in the world of retirement planning, the field of retirement planning, constantly. And so wide lens, at the 30,000-foot view, the big takeaway is don't become overly reliant on a simple heuristic that is simple and designed to be safe, but not necessarily optimal. The 4% rule caught mass market popularity in part because it is such a simple mental shortcut. It's kind of analogous to the popularity of the 1% rule in rental property investing. It's a simple mental shortcut. It's easy, back of the envelope, back of the napkin math, and that has A particular appeal to people. But the fact that something is easy to calculate on the back of a napkin does not make it the final word. It makes it purely a starting point. And it is a starting point that itself is far more nuanced than many people initially believe. As Bill Bengen described, one thing that people often miss about the 4% rule is that it's meant to be increased with inflation each year. Many people don't know that. They believe that this heuristic states that you withdraw a flat 4% every year, when in fact, that's never been the case. And beyond that, people also miss the nuance that a safe withdrawal rate is designed for the worst case scenario. But if you're trying to find a withdrawal rate for something other than the worst case scenario, well then that's a fundamentally different question with a different answer. So, wide lens, big picture, the takeaway here is to not be overly reliant on these simple heuristics because they provide an easily accessible starting point, but remember, it is only a starting point, and simple or safe is not the same as optimal. Those are three key takeaways from this conversation with Bill Bengen, the creator of the 4% Safe Withdrawal Rule. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast. Don't forget to download our guide to inflation and recession in the year 2022. You can get it by going to affordanything.com inflation. That's affordanything.com inflation. It's a free five-day email series. Don't forget also that we are launching our course, Your First Rental Property. We're offering this only once this year. So if you want to enroll in this course, this is your one and only time this year When you'll be able to do so, we're opening our doors in June. And to learn more, you can go to affordanything.com/slash VIP list. That's affordanything.com/slash VIP list. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast. Make sure you're following us in whatever app you're using to listen to this show so you don't miss any of our amazing upcoming episodes. Please, while you're in that app, leave us a review and please share this episode with a friend or a family member. Thanks again for being part of this community, and I will catch you in the next episode.